Let's pray to our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father and our God, we lift up the name of Jesus Christ. We lift it up among us, for he is our King, our Savior, our Leader, our Great Shepherd, the Head of the Church. And so, Father, we call out to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And ask that you might be pleased to open up our hearts and our minds to comprehend, to apprehend all the things there there are there for us in the food of life. Our Father, I pray that you would um, reconfigure our hearts. Lord, we need a reorientation of our thinking. Uh, We need... um, a fresh awareness of your greatness and majesty. Uh, Father, we, the, the, the week has beaten us down. It's, it's taken its toll on our lives. It's, it's caused us to, to question and wonder. And Lord, we need a, a, a reminder of your greatness and majesty and power. So Father, as you take us on a journey today into your word, would you cause us to... to Uh, willingly receive what you have from us, not to shut it out, but, Father, to be open to what the Spirit of God wants to do in our lives, to reshape us. And send us from here rejoicing, Father, I pray, with repentant hearts that rejoice in the change that you make in our lives, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I think of all the injustices that There are in our world, there is none greater than the thought entertained by so many that God isn't fair. I think that's one of the great disappointment or the the great descriptions of the disappointment in the lives of so many. God just doesn't seem to do enough in this cruel, cruel world of ours. And as I continue on in the series, as we prepare our hearts for the Easter weekend, on the theme of worship, God, uh, worship Jesus' way, the call to worship today is a call to communion. Both an understanding of the ceremony, the formalized communion, and the reality of communion, which the ceremony and the ritual, the formality, illustrates. Uh, I want to point out to you this morning that we know that it's a, a one-sided cost event in favor of people. I think all of us will freely admit that we are steeped in self-preservation, self-gratification, and self-advancement. And the uh, rescue that the Lord has in mind for us is from all of that that we hold on to so tenaciously to our detriment. So I wonder if you might turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 26. The section of scripture that I want to look at this morning is the call to communion. The truth of the gospel in an action. And this call to worship focuses on the cosmic size injustice of just that. I would submit that whenever we are tempted to give God or entertain in our minds a bad report with respect to God that we should read this text all over again. Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, 
What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did just as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, or literally, will hand me over. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will hand me over. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who hands over the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would hand him over, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You yourself have said it. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of God. So this morning I want to answer the question from this text, what is the call to communion all about? Or literally, what is Christ like? Because this is the centerpiece of all that there is and and means to us in terms of the heart of Jesus Christ and what he came to do and what he has offered to us. This is the very center of the truth of the scriptures. So what is Christ like? And I want to share five thoughts with you from this text. The first is this. The call to communion is making arrangements for the grossly undeserving. Now, while Judas was betraying and the disciples were busy saving their skins... Jesus was forgiving, or at least he was putting in place what it would take to forgive them. The gospel writers throughout each of the gospel uh, highlight the fact that, that in this offering of Jesus offering himself, Judas is betraying the Lord. And, and by the time we get to the epistles, Paul is also emphasizing in his text with respect to communion that On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and took the cup. And in that same text, the the Apostle Paul is reminded that not only did Judas betray, but he talks about the church of Corinth betraying the Lord at that very time. He says, when you gather together, you're doing more harm than good. And to the ones who've betrayed him, to the ones who have disowned him, to the ones who are doing more harm than good, Jesus set in place at his own personal cost the, op, the, 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 uh, the, the, the setting for forgiveness of our sins. Now, um, some people 
like to think that, or, or feel sorry, a little sorry for Judas. They, 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 they think that, um, that, uh, that Judas sometimes gets a bad rap in all this stuff because, I mean, think about it. He was, he was very disappointed about the way things were turning out. He was disappointed about the world. He was, he was disappointed about the fact that the Romans had, had, had taken control of, uh, over his setting. He was, he was disappointed that that his career wasn't going where he was hoping it was going because the one he was following had just told him that it wasn't going to, to result in what he was hoping for. And, and he probably had a really bad background too. He probably had a really rotten childhood and, and all these things that sort of heaped upon him. We should feel really sorry for Judas because after all, if he had just known what Jesus was about to do, if he had just had a little bit more time, maybe he could have changed his mind and, and everything would have been all right. So I, I guess it's kind of understandable that she, he should be disappointed with God. God wasn't making his setting very fun and nice and happy. Maybe we didn't notice as we were reading the text that the time of this event was the Passover. You're saying, well, so what does that have to do with anything you just said? It has everything to do with what I just said. They were gathered together in this great formalized ceremony called the Passover to celebrate the goodness of God to them. That's what it was all about. It was celebrating God as deliverer, God as rescuer of the people of Israel, God as savior of his people. It was a time that they came together to encourage each other in spite of the circumstances they were in that God had delivered in the past and that therefore God was capable of delivering in the future and in the present. That was the point of the celebration. So Judas was gathering with all of the others to celebrate the goodness of God. The irony of it surely can't escape us that while they were celebrating together the great deliverance of God in the past, that the very same God was presently orchestrating their deliverance in the present and for the future. And that's the the great tragedy of this moment. That though the whole atmosphere was charged with the glory of God's gracious deliverance of Israel, the stink in the room was raw betrayal. While Judas is selling out the God who has delivered, he is preparing again to deliver. That's why the scriptures teach all of us to wait on the Lord. What does it say in Isaiah 40 verse 31? Those who wait on the Lord will what? Renew their strength. It presupposes that you're in a state of weakness. It presupposes that you're in a state of discouragement. It presupposes that you're in a state of disappointment. It presupposes that everything isn't working out exactly the way you had hoped and dreamed. But what it says to you is wait on the Lord. Because those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength if Judas had only waited on the Lord. Instead of walking into the Passover celebration that was thanking the Lord for his greatness with his pocket full of 30 pieces of silver, 
in which he was selling out the Lord. And that is characteristic of those who are disappointed with God. They're disappointed with the fact that their setting isn't being changed. Can I get frank with you this morning? God's purpose in all of this rescue and salvation and deliverance talk is not to save you from your present setting. When Jesus came to, when the incarnation of our great God took place and Jesus came to be among the people, he didn't come to rescue them from Rome. He came to get Rome out of them. It's about the rescue of our hearts. He didn't come to save you from your bad situation or your bad childhood or your bad future or your tough times. He came to rescue you from yourself. He came to rescue you from your sin, which fundamentally is why many of us are in a rough situation in the first place. Judas was disappointed because he missed the point of God. God comes to change us. Now, does he ever, never change our setting or our situation? Of course he does. He's a prayer answering God. That's not what the saving work of Jesus Christ is all about. Jesus is not only preparing for the cost of forgiveness here, but he's graciously extending the opportunity to be forgiven, to reconsider, to stray no further. Jesus knows that each of us live in denial. And and in the text, we we realize that, that he's the son of God. He is the living God himself. He knows exactly who's going to betray him, who's going to hand him over. But he says to them as he gathers at that dinner that that night, he says, one of you is going to betray me. But wait a minute. Why didn't Jesus just out Judas right in the spot? Why didn't he say, why didn't he point his finger at him and say, Judas... You've already got the 30 pieces of silver in your purse. You're going to, you're the one. Why did he say one of, the, one of you is going to betray me? Because the call to communion is for those who are grateful for forgiveness and amazed at his grace and in need of forgiveness and the accompanying humility that leads to honesty. Do you notice in the text what happens? Verse 22. He has just told them that one of them is going to hand him over. And what do the disciples do? They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. The meaning and understanding of communion is that it is a time of self-examination. It is a time for those who have some sort of personal connection with the Lord Jesus Christ to look within their own hearts and recognize that 
I might be the betrayer. I might be the disloyal one. I might be the one who would sell out my Savior. And so each one of them realized that that they're they're just one bad decision away from, from selling out the Lord and throwing it all away. And each of us know of our own sin. Surely sin and the mention of sin is not a shock or a surprise to us this morning. Surely it's not that, that, that we need to be forgiven is, is a real surprise to us. Surely we know that, that we stand in need of forgiveness. And we all know our, our frailties and, and the possibilities that we ourselves could betray and disown our Lord. And so this great relationship that we have with God in a time of communion, in the formalized ways, a time that God wants us to examine our own hearts. He wasn't quick to throw out that Judas is the betrayer because, in fact, we know that all of them disowned him later on. And so with the communion, with the relationship with the Lord, one by one they came to see him and to Inquire of him, Lord, is it, is it me? Am, am I the one that's going to leave this place today and betray you, disown you? That's the heart that God can, can work on. And here's the distinction. Between them and the true heart of betrayal, Judas comes to him and says, Surely not I, Rabbi. They had all said, surely not I, Lord. This is the betrayer's heart. As far as Judas was concerned, Jesus was just a teacher. What he had to say was just optional instruction. Here, I enjoy hanging around with Jesus. I enjoy what he says to me. I enjoy filling my heart and my life with information. But Lord, please... He's not my Lord. The only reason that I'm gathered here with this group of people and and celebrating communion with the Lord is because of peer pressure. That can be the danger in a church setting. It's just custom to come to church. It's just the family responsibility to come to church. It's just my friends are going to wonder about me if I don't come to church. And, and, And I gather at the Lord's table and I participate in the Lord's table not because he's my Lord... It's just pressure of my peers. I just come here for information. I I enjoy the teaching of God's word, of the Bible. I find it informative. I find it uh, rather curious, and I enjoy critiquing it. Surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus still wasn't willing to out Judas. I don't prefer the translation the NIV has taken. That's very direct. I believe the correct translation is that you yourself have said it. Now here's the point. Jesus was graciously offering to Judas an opportunity to repent and reconsider his ways. That's what this Lord Jesus Christ is like. He gathers us and he says to us, 
one of you is going to disown me. One of you is going to hand me over. And he wants to get to our hearts so that we'll, we'll reconsider, we'll think about it, and we'll realize that, that, that I'm, I'm, just a, I'm just one bad choice away. It could be me. I, I need to put up some guards in my life. I've been careless this week. I, I, I need some new deterrence in my life. I, I've got to get closer to the Lord. I, I, I could stray. And, and if you have, the Lord says, here's your opportunity. Don't go any further. Stop. The, the money is jingling around in your pocket, Judas, but you don't have to go through with this thing. You could take that money back. That's grace. Don't miss the voice of God calling out to you, mentioning to you where you have gone too far away from him and calling you to himself. As Martin Luther rightly put it, excluded is only he who does not desire grace and absolution or one who never thinks of amending his life. The truth of the reality of a relationship with Jesus Christ is I trade betrayal for belief and disowning for lordship. The call to communion becomes a place of warning. Always. It's not that you must be sinless, but you never must be graceless or faithless or unrepentant or wicked. How can you sit at the table of forgiveness with outstanding debts of forgiveness between you and the Lord or anyone else for that matter? And the gathering of a celebration like this, whether we partake of communion or not, is a celebration of our communion with God. I think it says everything when we study Judas's heart in verse 15 of this chapter and we understand the condition that always produces betrayal. What are you willing to give me? <laughs> That's what leads to the disappointed heart. I-, I thought if I followed you, Jesus, it'd be happy all the day long. I thought it'd be easy. I thought I'd never have any trials. I thought, I thought I'd never have any trouble. I thought, I thought I'd never have any, any, any hardship and pain. I, what, what, Jesus, what are you willing to give me? He answers the question. The call to communion, thirdly, is a commemorating of Christ's body as a substitute for my betrayal. It's the grace of invitation. The Lord isn't just a nice God. He's sacrificial for us. Do we understand what he has done? We, we see the language here. He broke it. He gave it. Take and eat. Drink. All of that kind of language. It's all about God doing for us what we couldn't possibly do for ourselves. What are you willing to give me? I, I'm willing to give myself to you, Jesus says. I'm willing to give my salvation. I'm willing to give my forgiveness to you. Is that not enough? I'm willing to be this substitute. I'm willing to release you from guilt. 
and punishment and sin and wrath and hell and the devil. That's what I'm willing to give. I'm the perfect and sufficient sacrifice once for all. Sufficient for all, but available and received by those who obey and take. Jesus says at communion, here it is. My body, take it. My, my blood, drink it. Here it is for you. Receive it. The heart of the gospel is we are all receivers It's all on his tab. Communion's a call to obedience, to obey first the invitation to receive. We wander around thinking that we have to fix our own lives. Well, maybe when I get ready for Jesus, I, I got to go home and clean up my life a whole lot. And someday I'll be ready for Jesus. You're never, you're ne- your house is never in order. Your life is never in shape for Jesus. He's the one who has to put your life in shape. That's the point. He's not going to fix all of your out external settings. He's not going to change your place. He's not going to change your background. He's not going to change all of the things and the hardships that are around you necessarily. But what he is going to do is change your life. That's what he offers. He says, I'm the substitute. I'll go and die in your betrayal place for you. My body, my blood, not yours. It should have been your body, and it should have been your blood. But no, it's going to be my body and my blood for you. Scriptures teach us in Ephesians 2, 2, and 3 that, that we used to live according to the ways of the world, gratifying our sinful nature, Enslaved by the desires of our own body, obedient to the fleshly thoughts and outbursts of our flesh. That's, that's the way we used to live. But, but because of what Christ has done, we've left all of that now for a relationship with Christ. It's all about his grace. He says and he gives his body in our place. This is my body, he says. I- I'm paying for this. You hear this, he says. Believe it, then respond to it. Receive it. Forgiveness received, by the way, is the divine medicine for every soul. Without which there can be no fellowship with God, no fellowship with others, and even with one's own conscience. Forgiveness, it is the ultimate divine medicine. Betrayal work is death work. And that kind of employment leads to death. But cup work, that's saving work. To drink deeply of that brings you into salvation. To drink deeply of the Lord Jesus Christ brings you salvation that he offers to you. Receive it. Take it. It's the blood of the, blood of the new covenant, Christ calls it. When he talks about his body and his blood, he's talking about a separation of the two. When blood is separated from the body, it usually leads to death. And it usually leads to a violent death. That's what he's talking about by by describing what this is all about, this new covenant. He is ours because he gave himself for us. 
Fourthly, the call to communion is a call to ceremonially enjoy by special divine invitation, which you are to enjoy continually, the the real presence of Christ. We, We must never think of this as some sort of mythical belief system or some sort of social gathering or some sort of custom with interesting social mores. This is about a living God that we might never forget the great I am is a living, present, real God. That's why it's called communion. We're communing with the real, living God. And communion, communion, there's the real presence of Christ. Here's the deal. He calls it covenant. Covenant is, from the perspective of God, for sure, the greatest of all securities... God is saying to us, in my blood, I am signing a covenant deal with you of all the greatest security. And when he does that, he says, I really mean it. I am obligating myself to permanently be your Savior and your Lord. I mean, think about that. Let that register in. We're used to broken contracts. We're used to people breaking promises. God doesn't break promises. He said that you in relationship with me is a covenant relationship, a covenant that I have crafted, a covenant that I have formed. Just receive it, and I'll carry forth all of the obligations of that covenant. I will make myself yours permanently, and I will make you mine. Permanently. You sin, I'll die. You repent, I'll forgive. If I forgive, you'll be with me, and I'll be with you. And if you cut and run away, I'll come after you, and I'll call out to you, and you'll return to me, because my sheep hear my voice, and they follow after me. That's the promise he's making with this, the new covenant. It was Passover time. As they were there eating the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, he comes to them and says, eat this, this bread is my body. Drink this cup. This cup is my blood. You're used to eating the the sacrificial lamb. I am the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You have been eating a reasonable facsimile that pointed to me, but now I'm here. I'm the lamb. I'm the Paschal lamb. Eat me. Drink my blood. Take me to be your savior. It it was was the the most... um, the most uh, illustrative of moments as they're there at the Passover meal and he is interpreting that meal as God the deliverer, God the rescuer, God the savior is the one and I'm the lamb of God. And so he holds up the bread and says this, bread It's the lamb, my body. I am it. My body is the lamb. In your place, eat it. I am the food of life. He holds up the cup and says, this cup, this cup is my blood of the Passover. It's it's the Passover blood that, that, that is for your heart. That when the death angel of eternity wanders over your heart, he will pass over your heart. 
The bread is the bread, the cup is the cup, and Jesus is the real thing to all who eat it and drink it. Not because of the ceremony. The ceremony is a formalized ritual of reality, of being in communion with Jesus Christ because you have received his salvation. You've received him. And this new covenant that he talks about, the covenant in my blood, was promised in Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. And there were three things that would mark that covenant. The law would be inside of them. And every person in covenant would know him personally. And everyone in covenant would have their sins forgiven. And that's why he stands there and says, this is now all about internal. The law will be inside I will be inside. You will be forgiven. Don't be disappointed about your external environment or circumstances. I'm coming into your life and making you new, changing your life. I'm renovating you. I'm reshaping you. That you might be able to make a difference in your setting. And after he had said all of these things, he said to them this very night, you will all fall away on account of me. The final look at communion is the call to communion is a reminder of our tremendous cleanup needs until the greatest celebration of all. What I find um, quite amazing in this text, is bracketed between betrayal and disloyalty is amazing grace. And you know what? In a microcosmic way, this is the story of each one of our lives. We all started out as betrayers of God. And by His grace, He rescues us. And saves us. And we gather together, communion after communion, Sunday after Sunday. And we stand up like Peter. And we say, Lord, I know you warned us. I know you warned us about disloyalty. I know you've... You've caused me to have a self-examining heart. And here I am. I'll stand up and say... If every one of the people in this room this is betrays you and is disloyal to you, I never will be. Because I'm not part of peer pressure. And it says in the text, after Peter boldly with bravado stands before the Lord, every one of them came and said, Not I, Lord. Even if I have to die, I'll never be disloyal to you. By the time Jesus got to the garden that night, they couldn't even pray with him. By the time the night was over, they had all cut and run. And the one who stood first with the biggest mouth said, I don't know the man. 
That's why Jesus had a time of self-examination. One of you will betray me. Actually, all of them were going to disown him. Disappointed with God? You kidding me? God should be really disappointed with me. And if you're honest with your own heart, God should be really disappointed with you. Every time we eat and drink together, it's about grace surrounded by sin. Every time. In fact, um, some of you are thinking, I'd never disown the Lord. I'd never be disloyal to my Savior after what he's done for me. Before you leave the parking lot this morning, you'll probably blow up at your family. Before you get to work tomorrow, you'll get geared up for your shop talk, you know? The language of the environment you work in. By Thursday, you'll have theological amnesia about Sunday's sermon. Disappointed with God? And what does Jesus do? He invites you to receive to take, to eat, to drink, to be forgiven again. It was a really pressure-packed time, you know, when Matthew wrote this gospel for the people of God. It was getting close to 70 AD and the Roman heat was on. You can imagine... Here it was, Rome against Israel. And you know what it would be like. Every family was expecting that, that you'd be loyal to your country. You'd be loyal to your countrymen. There'd be a, 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 a zeal for Israel. Nationalistic fervor. Stand up against Rome. All of you. And they'd look at the Christians in their families and they'd say, what good is Christ? What's the point of Christianity? It's not fixing our world. It's not fixing our setting. Jesus didn't come to fix political situations. He came to renovate broken hearts and make people whole and new again. He, he came to offer forgiveness. He came to relieve us of guilt and fear of death. So if you want him to change your external setting and you want him to change your political scenario and you want him to change your past and how horrible that was and, and you're hoping that he'll rescue you from all that kind of trouble in the future, you're going to be really disappointed with Jesus. But if you need your heart to be changed, if you need your own life to be reshaped, if you need to be saved from yourself, and your sin, 
then you will be more than amazed at Christ. Because he will do more in your life than you could have ever imagined or thought. The problem, as Dale Bruner puts, is is we have been living too long on the slim rations of careerism or our own hopes. Jesus' doctrine of hope is one of the main needs of the church. May you leave here not depending on the circumstances to change or the settings to change or your great hopes of careers or great dreams of the future. May you leave here filled with hope because Jesus is your Lord and Savior. That's the hope of the world. This is what Christ is like. He graciously grants us all we need for life and godliness personally because he rescues us from ourselves and from our sinfulness that we might live for him. And this is what it is like to be Christ-like, to have the hope of victory over your sin. Our Father and our God, I pray this morning that we might conclude our time together as they did. In all of this, the cross was looming and Rome was imposing itself upon them and hardships and suffering and pain was was in the fore. But they left and sang a song with all of their hearts, rejoicing and praising the great God who delivers and rescues and saves. Oh, Father, Would you lift up the hearts of those who've been saved by you this morning that we might sing like we've been saved for Jesus' sake. Amen. You'd think Jesus and the disciples would have been somewhat in low key or discouraged about all this talk of sacrifice and body given and blood and death and all of that, but they weren't. I mean, Jesus was looking at the cross that was looming. And you know how he concluded their meeting together that night? He said, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. This was an upbeat statement. Jesus said, listen, guys, stick with me no matter how bad it gets because I want to tell you that those who stay with me will be very, very glad because it is about communion. It's not about a change of settings and a change of circumstances, a change of your past and necessarily a a relief in your future. What it is, is I'm with you and you're with me. It's about communing with the living God. And someday, Jesus says, we'll be doing that all together for all eternity. And that's what I'm looking forward to, he says. And with that, they went out and sung victory in Jesus. We have it on good authority. Our Father and our God. The applause is you, Lord. You are the greatest. And we love you and we thank you. And you have granted us victory over our sin and ourselves. Lord, I pray that we won't leave this place having had this wonderful time with the presence of God, you being here among us and in us, and disown you. 
Lord, would you make this stuff stick? That we would follow hard after our Lord and honor you with our lives. Please, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.